Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down and talked to Bob Moesta. So Bob is a founder, maker, owner, investor, and innovator. Really, quite a lot of things. He is one of the pioneers of jobs to be done, and he is currently president and CEO of the Rewired Group. With Bob, much like Ryan Singer, we talked about a lot of ideas I found intriguing. If I was to summarize them all here and the ideas they made me ponder, well, the intro would be as long as this podcast. But one idea we talked about in particular was how and why we prototype. How often do we prototype and experiment to verify rather than to learn? So this all got me to thinking, do most of us use prototyping and experimentation in the right ways? Do we use it to test buttons and copy and layout and flow and really features around the edges of our core product? Or do we often use prototyping to learn and make major, maybe even radical adjustments in the direction of our products and companies? What is great about Bob is he makes you think and ask the whens and not just the whys. Well, enough for me. Let's kick this off. And afterwards, tweet at me at eBoduk or shoot me a note at eBoduk at pendo.io and tell me what you think. So welcome, Wellbers of Product, to another episode of Product Love. Today, I have with me Bob Moesta. Why don't we kick this off, Bob, by you giving us a little overview of your background? Well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here and talk about kind of what I do and what I, you know, what, to be honest, what I love about creating product and doing product. So my background is uh, I'm an engineer. I've, uh, I, I think I've, I came out of the womb taking things apart and eventually being able to put them back together. So I was always doing things where, uh, to be honest, uh, it took about half the stuff in my house before my parents literally took tools away from me. And so for me, I've, I've always been fascinated on how things work. The other part is that I'm, I have the, the gift of what I call dyslexia, which is I can't really read and write. And so it's very, very, or very difficult for me to kind of piece those things together. And so making things and putting things together have kind of always been part of my MO. And so, and the other part is that I can see math equations in my head. So it was made an engineering degree, kind of the, the only option I could actually kind of take, if you will. But I started at Ford Motor Company. I'm based in Detroit, born and raised. Dad, an engineer, mom, a teacher. But I was lucky enough to do an internship with Dr. Deming and then Dr. Taguchi in uh, Japan through Ford and basically learn all their methods and tools, so Lean and Six Sigma and all that kind of stuff when I was 18, 19 years old and learn these methods and tools where, to be honest, I, I would have very little technical background, but I could go off and help improve or create new products very, very quickly. And so by having these, uh, I'll say, uh, lenses and philosophies and tools in my hands, I w- it enabled me to be a very, very productive engineer very, very quickly after graduation. From there, I, I worked uh, in the automotive business for about seven years, and I worked in the defense business, and then I worked in the uh, food business, and then I worked in a home products business and did a, a second startup there, and then I worked in private equity for a little bit. After that, I worked. Uh, was in the home business, and then I went to the software business, and then I started this business. So I've done totally about seven startups, built, sold them, some successful, some not. But pretty much now, I'm a. I run a company called the Rewired Group. There's five of us, and we basically help people innovate, and coach, and basically develop new products every day, every week. I mean, I think I'm on seven weeks straight of sprints. So I'm a little exhausted. So it's my week off and I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> so take me through a little of those jobs, you know, talk to me about your favorites and what were your favorites? Like your favorites, I guess. Well, I, I loved, I loved the work at Ford because at some point in time it would be, there was like people, I'm not sure people understand how complicated the car is and that it was almost like a, an in-depth each week or each couple of weeks, I'd be pulled into different either problems or different opportunities to kind of prototype and make improvements. And so I'd go from paint systems to bearings to ball bearings to fuel to shock absorbers to windshield wipers to door seals. And it'd be like, so it was almost like everything was thrown at me. And 
eventually, um, I have an electrical engineering background, but I, I was able to work with a gentleman by the name of Don Clausing, who was at MIT, and he wrote a book called Total Product Development. And in helping him build that, I was able to study, uh, do some master study in both chemical and mechanical engineering when I was there helping him. And so to me, it was like every day I was learning or every week I was learning some new system in the in the car across different product lines and eventually going to Europe and working in Europe. So for me, it was exhausting and I would say it was long hours, but that was like the Petri dish or the, the crucible by which I think I just learned how to learn really, really, really fast. I think the, the second business I loved the most was building homes because I think that ultimately I was able to change people's lives. You could see how helping people move from one house to the next house and really reframing the business from being a builder to being a mover and understanding how to help families. It was probably the most rewarding part of work that I've done. So now one thing that you're known for is jobs to be done, right? And yep. when I think about that, I think you're empowering other people to build businesses and products, like whether it's a car, whether it's building housing, right? Yeah. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about jobs to be done and the jobs to be done framework. Yeah. So jobs to be done is really, it, it, it started on the engineering side because one of the things that really influenced me when I was in Japan was this notion of being problem focused and being function focused. And what, what I found is that the Japanese would always talk about what's the product supposed to do, where when I was here in the U.S., we kept talking about what the product's not supposed to do. And we'd be constantly looking for problems and waiting for problems to kind of pop up where the Japanese would always be trying to understand the function and the variation and the robustness of functions. And so job to be done was really started as kind of this notion of helping engineers to talk about the function of something as opposed to the problem of something. So for example, if you just think of the top of a water bottle, right? And it's, I have a, I have a, I have the lid and I have actually the bottle and ultimately what would happen is people would end up saying, well, how often does it leak? And so we'd do a leak test where you'd put pressure to it and you'd see what pressure would it leak. And ultimately the question would become, you know, and, and from a, the Japanese perspective, they look at it and say, well, how does it seal? And what's the function of sealing? And how do I measure how it seals? And so what we would actually measure there would be the compression that you'd have all the way around basically and getting uniformity of compression to seal the top and the bottle as opposed to waiting for it to leak. And so there'd be a whole different set of ways and lenses you'd look at something and it would help you do that. Ultimately jobs became this notion of helping people see what is it supposed to do? And then ultimately when I got into the food side of the business, I started to realize like I got demographic and psychographic data. And when you started to talk to people about it, it was like I had the same problem. People would talk about problems of it and we wouldn't talk about what it was supposed to do. And so I flipped jobs to be done from, I'll say the, the engineering realm into the product realm and said, well, what job is the customer really trying to hire the product for? And what job is it trying to do? And how do I know when it's done it? And so instead of talking about problems of the consumer side or the requirements, it would be taking a step back or two to basically see that people don't buy products. They hire them to make progress in their life. And can we see the progress that they're and can they articulate the situation where they're going to value this and want to make progress and the outcome that they seek? And between that, I'm able to th then build a specification of kind of context and outcome that then tells me how to innovate. And so ultimately, jobs is this way in which to view the customer or the consumer and to understand what progress they're ultimately trying to make by pulling a new technology or a new product into their life. So it's almost creating the void that exists. So we can actually know where to innovate. Well, let's get into that more in a minute. One thing you mentioned I wanted to dig into a little bit was, you know, your time with Deming, your time in Japan. Yeah. How has, you know, learning lean product development methods in Japan framed the way you view product development? And what are the differences you saw between there and here? And maybe take us through how it influenced your work on jobs to be done. Yeah. So I, I think it's really kind of at the foundation because uh, of kind of how I think and what I do. And it's one of those things where I think I was very young, I was very naive, and, and to be honest, I was very pliable and moldable. And as I was learning the things in Japan and learning the things from all these different kind of experts in many different industries, as we would come back to Detroit and try to apply them, the language would be completely different. And so you'd end up seeing that most of the metrics that we would have would be measures of problems. So uh, leakage, um, orange peel, drips, you know, door closed 
all these things that would be where the Japanese would have a totally different measurement system, we would only have a problem-based measurement system. And so the requirements of a car was almost always written in a way about what the car shouldn't do as opposed to what it should do. And so I think that in itself was this lens of problem versus solution or problem versus function was kind of at the core of it. And then from there, it's also systems thinking in terms of understanding that there's a cause and effect relationship and that we're ultimately trying to design systems that create outcomes that we have to have metrics for and understanding the difference between something called control factors and noise factors. So all that, this language and knowledge and framework, which was very, very new at the time has really helped me kind of see things and to be honest, take words. Again, I'm a, I'm, I'm a dyslexic, so I can talk, but the reality is, is it's very hard to read, but I can actually take conversations and map them into a systems diagram to talk about what are we actually saying and how does this thing really work? And being able to do both observational kind of understanding and language understanding to unpack things. So typically what, what I'll find is in jobs to be done, I never accept the words like easy or fun or fast or whatever. It's like, to me, it's unpacking it down so I can actually put it into a system and understand, is it the number of steps? Is it the number, you know, the time? Is it, is it the actual knowledge that I have to have in order to do it? Is it the practice? What does easy mean? And how do I know when it's easy? And how do I know when it's not easy? And being able to play in that space. So for me, that's, I'll say, the big thing. The other part was to realize that I have to learn. And innovation is all about learning. And failing and learning go together. And being a dyslexic is, I already know I'm always going to be wrong, but it's about iterating and iterating fast. And so what I found is that when I came back, everybody wanted to think everything through and be right, as opposed to basically admit that they didn't know and had to prototype to learn. And so you found that it had a huge impact on me in terms of my ability to really take the time and find ways to learn through empirical data as opposed to theoretical data. So those are the big ways in which it influenced me. Awesome. And now on the jobs to be done subject specifically, I mean, you, yep. you, you talked about it as a way to help people make their lives better, to accomplish tasks better, to do you know, their jobs better. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, I think the other part was most of the research was done by marketers and marketers are word people and they're just trying to communicate it. And so they find out what resonates with consumers and basically say easy, fast, fun, convenient are all words that resonate with the consumer and they're done. But as an engineer, I have to cause fun. I have to cause convenient, right? And there might be 15 ways I have to cause convenient, but the reality is like I can only afford three. And so what three do I do? And where's the trade-offs and where are the margins? Like where, what costs different money? And so part of this is the, the data I was getting was just not deep enough. And so Jobs was really trying to make sure that we could unpack kind of those words and those phrases and kind of the things that quote resonate with the consumers down to what do I really have to deliver on? And what do people really mean by those things? And where's their true meaning? And where is their like, it doesn't really have any meaning. So for example, people will talk about healthy all the time. But healthy is, you know, healthy is like sun chips are healthier than Cheetos, right? But sun chips aren't healthy. <laughs> and so part of this is being able to understand where are the reference points and what do people really mean by things? And so that's the other part. Yeah, can, I like that sun chips example. Can you give us another example of taking and unpacking a jobs to be done? Well, I, I think that the fact is, is people will take this notion of easy and it depends on the context by which you're talking about easy. Is easy actually about the number of steps? Is easy about that it's like it's all the ingredients that I'm familiar with? Is easy about that it, it takes me only, you know, five minutes? What are the real meaningful things? And so, for example, if you're talking about preparing a meal and it's like it's simple and easy, like at what point is it not simple? Is simple like more than 10 ingredients? Is simple more than 10 steps? And at what point does it become hard? And so part of this is being able to use contrast to create the meaning, to understand the parameters by which then I can actually start to build recipes that are easy and convenient. And so part of it, though, is making sure that I understand the context by which people are saying it. And then two, at what point do they actually not, they're not easy and they become hard. And I imagine that would be based upon the person to take like the cooking example, right? Like someone's yes. just starting to cook is different, easy is different than say a professional chef, right? That's right. But part of it gets back to what are the contexts that you're trying to get into? And so as much as people would think that they're infinite versions of that, 
there's usually only four or five different contexts that then have different understanding of what it is. So if it's, like you said, easy for a beginner is very different than easy for somebody who's advanced. And so part of it is you might have to actually come up with a new way in which to communicate and not use the word easy, but it's like, this is a beginner recipe versus this is an advanced recipe. And both of them have to stay within the realm of easy and convenient. Got it. Got it. And you might just segment that in ways like you have access to a professional kitchen or not (laughs) exactly and so and so well again if you try to give a service it's like whole notion is like well if they have a service they're trying to actually take a break and so you find that that context of why do they have it and what are they actually trying to do with it versus i'm trying to learn how to cook easy and convenient and learning is very different than easy and convenient of like just help me get dinner on the table awesome so you know, talk to me a little bit about how jobs to be done could be, you know, where it could fail and how it could fail with people. How could they implement it poorly? What's, what's yeah, a good example so, of that? So I've, I've kind of coined the term uh, uh, whitewashing jobs, which is where people sit in a room and they think about the jobs from a, a, almost a theoretical perspective or kind of all their own data. And jobs to me is about the trade-off that consumers are willing to make and kind of that unpacking down to action of what they'll have to do in order to be satisfied or where they're struggling, right? And so what happens is there's two kind of fundamental problems. One problem is that they take it too high and they actually just stay at this, uh, we need a fast, easy, convenient, and they load everything into one thing to say the job is it's just satisfy the customer. And most of the time what we're trying to do is actually find out different points on it. So what happens is people do interviews. The average interview for me is about 40, 45 minutes. The longest one is about maybe 90, 95 minutes. But most people who do don't go deep enough, they're done in 15 minutes. They like get all the surface level stuff, but they don't actually dig past it. Right. So a lot of the method and tools on the consumer side are uh, come from both criminal and intelligence interrogation methods of trying to make sure we get the true story and understanding what caused people to switch. And so if you don't get deep enough, that's one problem. The other problem is that you focus too much on the product. And so typically most of the conversations that we have is I don't really care what product they bought. I want to know why they like the feature. So they'll say, boy, I really like this wristband, uh, my Fitbit, right? And it's like, well, what about it do you like? And it's like, well, it's not too wide. Well, why is that a problem? And it's like, well, you know what? It doesn't feel like a watch and I can wear a watch and the Fitbit together. Oh, so what? You wouldn't wear the two together? No, I wouldn't. If it was wider, I wouldn't do that. But now that it's so thin, I actually wear it. It feels like it's more like a bracelet than it is a watch. And so I can actually still wear my watches on top of it. That's why I don't wear an Apple watch. And so you dig down deeper past these things. Then you say, well, and they say it's comfortable. Well, what do you mean it's comfortable? It's like, tell me what that, and they're like, well, it's just comfortable. What's not comfortable? You know, well, you know, I've had something that dug into me. I have something else where it has hard edges and it pulls into me. Like, so part of it is they can't tell you what comfortable is, but they can tell you what comfortable is not. And so it's really digging down of, and it's almost playing dumb and stupid to say, like, I don't know what you mean by these words, which is, again, as a dyslexic, I, I realize I don't know what people mean half the time by the words they use. And so it's trying to make sure they can either give me an example or that they can play it out for me or they or in some cases they can tell me what it's not. Interesting. So now you're spending a lot of time working on Innovators Trade School and we talked to your a little yeah. bit about innovation earlier. You know, yeah. talk to me about the skills good innovators have. Yeah, so I, I, I took a step back in the spring and just kind of said, all right, what do I want to do? I, I did a kind of a strange thing. My, my mom passed away when she was 63 and I'm 53. And I, I kind of picked her death date and said, you know what? I'm going to actually pick that as the day I'm going to die. And if I'm going to die, then what do I really want to do with my life? And so it forced me to take a step back and look at things and say, you know what? if I really want to help people innovate, I think I need to actually kind of look at things differently. And so I've been building and kind of using methods and kind of coaching and mentoring people and doing a lot. I'm uh, teaching at a couple universities and trying to just kind of pass that stuff down. But what I realized is in that notion of taking the step back, what I realized is there's these skills that the, the, like, if I kind of look at all the people I've worked with, I've worked on over 3,500 different kinds of innovations for almost 30 years. And I look at the people who are kind of the, what I would say are at the the top of their game, the top 5% of people who are innovators. There's these underlying skills they have that they just have built over time. And then to be honest, there's no one really talking about them or teaching them, or if they are, they're doing it in a very academic way and not in a practical or kind of pragmatic way. And so I kind of took a step back and kind of put these people in a pool and said like, 
what are those skills that these people have that enable them to be so fast and so and learn so well and basically be you know and know how to be decisive and all these different things and so lots of people are talking about process and methods and tools but there's these five skills one like and so one of the skills is perspective a really good innovator has this ability to see through time, see back in time, play things out over time. They can actually play the role of different people who are going to be part of interacting with the product. They can play the consumer. They can play the customer. They can play finance. They have ways of looking at kind of a project or an innovation and basically being able to, in some cases, omnisciently look around and be empathetic to kind of all these different perspectives. And when they are, they can see where the conflicts are. They can see where the, the trade-offs have to happen. They can actually manage the team differently. And they do this in their head in a very natural way. And they usually do it without telling anybody they're doing it. And so part of this is, is helping people. And, and to be honest, as an engineer, the only place you really learn perspective is in art class. <laughs> or you might learn it in theater of some sort where you play roles of different people. But the really good innovators have this notion of perspective and empathy that enables them to be really, really good at innovation. Another one is this notion of systems. And though everybody talks about systems, the systems that, that I'm talking about, that the innovators that I know, they have this notion of functions related to what it's supposed to do as opposed to the problems of systems or a very academic view of systems. And if you really try to look at systems, they come out to be you know, it, it, it's almost academic. And what you find is uh, the innovators that I've worked with who understand systems, it's the form of language to actually drive conversation. And it's whether this is a metric or whether this is an input to the system or whether these are actions in the system. And so one word can actually fit in different places. And so part of it is being able to understand how something works. And so these innovators have a notion of systems. The third thing is that they have a notion of consumers and how consumers value things. And they, which is more or less to me, the, the notion that they understand progress and how to actually design for consumers and understand what trade-offs they're willing to make. The third one is really about building experiences. Like to me, the craziest part is like a lot of these people that I've worked with, they, they have this notion of being able to understand like microseconds of experiences and the notion of like eating a Snickers bar and how the first, you know, how you unwrap it and how you smell it and then how the first bite is soft and then it's hard and then it masticates in your mouth into a ball and then you chew it down and then you swallow it as food and it sits in your, like they understand the, the criticality of how experiences have to be designed in order to deliver on the job. And then the last one is really prototyping. So it's in a way in which the prototype that is just way more effective than AB, what I think traditionally in the software world is called AB testing. These are people who, because they see systems and they can see multiple variables and they can see how it works, they're actually prototyping sets of things as opposed to one thing at a time. So to me, it's, it's really trying to one, get this notion of the trade school of here are these four skills that I, I want people to actually start to hone and refine and that they're combinations of philosophies, their approaches, frameworks. But the aspect is, is that as you get better at each one of them, you become a better innovator. And I don't believe it's a knowledge problem, but it's a practice problem. And it really came from, I was uh, doing some work at some community college and I was watching how they were teaching welding and they'll teach you kind of the academic part of welding. But eventually they basically, you got to go out and weld. And what you realize is it's the practice of welding that makes you good at welding. It's not the knowledge of welding. And so to me, these are the things that, these are those underlying subroutines, those underlying elements, those, those fundamental things of thinking that most innovators have and have honed and refined over time. And they've either been doing it as little kids or they've been doing it over, you know, they, or they've learned it through the school of hard knocks. But eventually when they get to be really good innovators, they've mastered these five skills. Yeah. And those five were right. Perspective, the systems thinking, progress and yep. relations to jobs, building yep. experiences that do jobs and then yep. prototyping, right? Yeah. So the craziest part to me is in prototyping. Most people are trying to prototype to verify. And that if you look at really good innovators, they don't prototype to verify, they prototype to learn. So they're trying to find the edges of where things work and don't work, as opposed to prove that theirs is the best solution. And so yeah, it's that's, a, that's really very interesting. I mean, you mentioned A-B testing and you, know, you talked about it being not the most efficient way to test. And when you're talking about prototyping, you're talking about prototyping to learn. Is that 
a better way to look at testing? And is that your approach to prototyping? I think it depends on, the, it gets back to context. I think the notion is, is that, especially when I'm building a system, I want to actually understand how it works and how, where is the, the points where it fails. And so think of a registration system, right? And so I just registered for a conference. And as I look at, as I go through the registration process, there's a million different things I could be changing in the registration process, but they're not taking into account my excitement. They're not taking into account like how long it's going to take. They're asking me questions that I, to be honest, I'm not sure I know the answers to and they're required. And so I end up filling in bad things in the wrong places. And so all of a sudden it's like, by the time I'm done, it's just, they haven't thought through how to prototype that experience to make it happen. And so one, they build it and then they just test one thing at a time. So to me, it's like, there's a whole bunch of variables when you start to look at the registration process as a system and say, well, what's the sequence that I ask you? How many questions do I ask you before you actually feel like you've made some progress? What are the different fields? What's going to happen to those other fields? How much information do I really need? What's the bare minimum I need? What are the bonus things that I need? And so a lot of times people are just doing, well, this is how everybody else does it. That's how we should do it. They're not spending the time to one, break it down into systems and then understand how to prototype to figure out different ways in which to actually understand what that experience should be. So let's talk a little bit about how to dig deeper when talking to customers really and get to that aha moment, I guess, is a good way yeah. to describe it, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So typically for me on the consumer side, I'm in the jobs framework, I'm using a combination of the, the timeline, which is, so anybody who's actually trying to make progress, there's a first thought, what I would say is, Clay says it best, the questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. It's like, when do you have that question to say, boy, I could do this better, or this is not good enough. Then there's passive looking. And then there's some event that then causes you to go to active looking where you're willing to invest and, and learn. And then there's another event that basically causes you to have some time element to it where you have to make a decision to make some trade-offs, and then you commit. And once you commit, you have first expectations of satisfaction and then understanding how well the product actually met or the service met those things. And so we're using that frame of saying, what did you buy? You know, when did you buy it? And building a timeline to help people put themselves back in the moment. And then we're talking about making sure we understand what it's like going into the situation as opposed to having them reflect on what could have been better. The other part is that we're, we're using what we call the forces of progress, where we're digging in to say there's a push of the situation that says, today's the day I, I'm going to stop using this software and start using that software. And then there's the pull, which is once I see the software, it's like there's something I'm hoping for that, hey, when I buy this new software, you know, I can do this. And the, the crazy part is most people think that the problem solution space or the problem outcome space are symmetrical, right? So if, it's, if I say this problem, then the outcome is this problem going away. And what you find is that in people's lives, it just doesn't work that way. Sometimes they're pushed for one reason and they're hoping for something completely different. And so part of it is making sure you get their language. And so this is where you've run into trouble. If you sit in a room, you assume that the, everything's symmetrical and that the, the pushes and the pulls are just opposites, but that's not the case. The other part is we're digging past and trying to get to the anxieties they had as they were going into the purchase or going into the commitment. Like, what were you afraid of and what were you worried about? And what, about, what were you going to do with your old data? And, you know, how is everybody going to get trained? And what were the questions that popped into your head? And then the last part is the habits that they have to give up. And so these interviews are very detailed in terms of getting down to that aha. And what happens is at some point in time, everybody feels like the stories are unique, and what I would say is at one level, they are very unique. But if you move up the level of abstraction one level, you can start to see like, oh, they were pushed in time. They basically were losing money on this one thing. It's like, yeah, they were getting ready to ramp up to the next level. And so they were going to have to train a whole new set of people. And so they were better off doing it now than later because the, otherwise they'd, they'd have to train people twice. All those different things, it's where the, what I would say is it's where the irrational becomes rational with context. And so by understanding both the timeline and the forces, we can actually kind of see what are the underlying causal mechanisms that cause people to say today's the day they're going to switch software, for example. The last thing that we do is as we're looking at this, we're thinking about the functional, social, and emotional pieces of what's motivating people to actually go through and do this. So I've got the forces, which are kind of the, the statements they're using, but sometimes it's uh, emotional would be I'm frustrated or, you know, I'm, you know, social is like, I, I'm worried about other people or I'm worried how I'll look to other people or I'm worried about kind of what everybody else is going to do. 
And so part of this is making sure we understand that it's a blend of the social, emotional, and functional across the forces and through the timeline. I don't know if that, that's probably too much, but that's, that's. No, I think that's great. In fact, I was going to dig in a little further. I mean, you can think about that too. Like if you're looking at it from a, take a software perspective and you're trying to a customer to stay, if you understand this fully, you can be more predictive, right? And when that customer is moving towards churn and address that, is that. That's correct. So we do what we call fire interviews. I want to talk to people who fired your software. And if I can understand what caused them to fire it, Basically, I can actually then figure out how to prevent it because I can see in the timeline that the crazy part is most people don't understand when people actually have that first thought of when they try to see something else and ultimately then figure out kind of how to stop the process of them moving on to the next product. Now, do you find it happens a lot earlier than people expect? Oh, yeah. People think it's like, oh, yeah, they they woke up this week and they fired us by Friday. And it's like, no, they want to get rid of you back in May, but they just haven't figured out how to do it yet. One, they haven't figured out what to move to. And two, the fact is, is that the, the frustration that they have is just building it. So it's building that energy to kind of say, I got to get out. Interesting. I mean, that has some interesting implications on, you know, especially SaaS and subscription models. That's right. Where churn is so important and keeping customers engaged and happy is so important. Yeah. So to me, I, I had a call today with somebody and I said, so one of my kind of filtering questions is, what's your zombie revenue? And people who haven't heard that before basically say, well, what do you mean by that? I'm like, I want to know how many people are paying you in the last 90 days and have not used your product at all, right? And so it's the, it's the notion of that you're one credit card away to expiration date from being fired, but you've already been fired and you don't even know it. And so what I get is two answers. One answer is like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm a little afraid to actually look it up because if I do, I have to disclose it to my board or to my investors. It's like, yeah, hey, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, if you can't admit up to that number, you'll never be able to admit up to what the real jobs are because why you think people are buying your product and why they really buy your product are usually not the same and they're not what you think. And so if you can't admit up to what the zombie revenue number is, then I'm not sure how to help you. And the other part is that if it is a big number, then it's like, all right, how do we go after that and help them cut that number down and basically keep people engaged longer and figure out why they're firing them? Yeah. And I imagine it gets complicated. It's more than just like 90 days. I mean, I would hope I mean, most people should be able to find that. I don't know. I find quite often that they can't, but I do imagine it's pretty complicated usage patterns based on customer tiers, sizes. Well, and it depends on the, like there. So I have a product called sugar sink and sugar sink is something where I, I only sync it up. It's like where I put all my photos up and I have all these, I have, you know, Google drive and all these other things, but sugar sink is like my backup to my backup. So I don't log in often, but I value it very much because it's literally probably been around since 2000. So it's got all my computer backups from everywhere. And so it's not a case where me logging in doesn't mean I value it. I value it as, as my warehouse. So of course I value it. Got it. And there's the opposite side of things too, right? Where you can try to identify people that are frustrated with their solution if you have an alternative you know, yeah. product offering, right? So, so learning a little bit about that. Yeah, so, so most of the time that I'm spending is really about trying to figure out what's next. And that's ultimately studying struggling moments. And so- to get people to understand jobs, we talk about kind of what causes somebody, what struggling moments do people have in their life that says, today's the day I'm going to hire your software product or today's the day I'm going to fire your software product. And every time they're actually switching, they believe they're making progress. And so what you have to do is understand that. But at the same time, there's little struggles that happen in the daily life that basically almost accumulate like bugs on the windshield. And so part of this is you're trying to actually in these interviews, not only understand what caused people to switch, but then understand where's the things that are building up that are causing them to say, you know, I'm not making as much progress as I want to, and I need to switch to go somewhere else. And so we're constantly looking for struggling moments. And once you see it, you can actually start to realize, like, at some point, the struggling moment isn't about one thing. It, it actually changes dimensions, and you end up having, a like, for example, Google Photos is a good example of this, where at some point in time, they started to advertise the fact of, like, hey, don't have enough room on your phone. Get, don't get a new phone. Get Google Photos. They'll help you basically get free up space so you can still take pictures. It was nothing about how good Google Photos was from a photo app. It was literally about going after the struggling moment to get on the phone. And once it was there, then people would use it. And so it's, it's very counterintuitive that you'd say, I, I'm building a photo app, but I'm not really talking about how good the photo app is. I'm talking about how it saves space. <laughs> yeah, that had to blow some marketing people's minds, right? Right. That's right. And so that's where, again, if you go after the struggling moments, the struggling moments is where things basically kind of play out. 
But I've heard you talk about, you know, programming and writing software and that there's a huge, you know, you feel there's a huge quality uh, problem there, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it's so, relatively easy to do. Can you talk about that? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Question. So, so, so uh, I was channeling Deming one time and it was like, I feel like half the time I go into some of these software companies and they're all about making sure the programmers are writing code. And I kind of try to say like, all right, how much of that code that people is writing every day gets actually into the product? And as you start to actually look at it, the thing is, is that Deming had a quote. He says, never confuse activity with productivity. <laughs> and so what I started to realize is that a lot of the times what happens is people are just building code because the programmers are said they should, they're supposed to write code. And if they're not writing code, they're not doing what they should be doing. And so, you know, we, we need to have them writing code all the time. And the reality is I just, I think 90% of code that's written is actually scrap or reworked. And so, and it gets back to the fact is, is in the day where I would say programming was cheap and easy, we could afford to do that. But the reality is, is that, that like everything else, we now have to be able to, to program in a more you know, effective way. And so to be honest, I'm trying to actually start to build some metrics around, are we better off spending time thinking and, and being able to, to frame things as systems and program the right things the right, first the right time, as opposed to constantly just reworking everything along the way. But doesn't some of that reworking play into your whole prototyping approach where you're putting something out there, you're learning, you're testing, you're hopefully modifying and improving and it, throwing it, out the old? Yeah, it does. But the thing is, is there's two things. Is the prototyping is explicit learning and changing things and, to be honest, pushing limits to figure out how to either make it go faster, cheaper, or better. And my belief is they're not actually, one, they're never taking the time to learn. When it doesn't work, they throw it out and they start over. And so there's this whole notion of rework that happens that it should be that way, but they're not actually using it to learn as much as they could from it, and they can be way more efficient. So my example is this is this is very similar to the food industry where let's say I'm making uh, you know Keebler chocolate chip cookies, and it's like, oh, they're not the right size. And it's like, oh, I'll just add a little more fat, and then oh, no, I'll add a little more sugar. And, then and they're, they're constantly, because it's so easy just to change the ingredients that they actually don't think about it, and they just constantly – change everything that eventually when they get to try to narrow down what the real you know formula is for the cookie they actually don't know what it is yeah i, I can understand that and now if you're i guess if you're defining jobs properly and you're looking for outcomes instead of activity right and that's right and then you can fit in a world where you can start prototyping and look at how that affects your outcomes and are you improving that and then iterate on that process. That's right. right? That's right. And, and I think the hardest part, and Clay and I talk about this kind of all the time, is I think the biggest problem is metrics. I don't think we have the right metrics on both productivity for software and understanding how to build the right constraints to measure then productivity inside those constraints. And again, we have to realize that the software industry is a very, very young industry compared to other industries. And so I think that it's, it's just boomed so much that it's, and there's so much gain to still be made from not necessarily doing it as efficiently. My belief is over the next 20, 30 years, it will change and become, it'll be very different. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think about like change for change sake sometimes. Like tax software is one for me where I felt like the user experience on tax software on one of the big tax software programs peaked, you know, like three years ago. And now they did, but they're, they're changing it still. It doesn't matter if it was better. It's like, well, let's change things up a little bit. It's not just the tax laws that changed, right? That they have yeah. to not do. I, I, I actually experience. Believe, yeah. So I actually believe that that's marketers. Marketers believe that they have to have something new and add something new. And the reality is, is like, you know, and the number of people are like, God, I just wish we'd go back to 2017 uh, TurboTax because it was awesome. But like, no, 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 I got to do, I got to learn something all new again. And it's just like, and again, it's trying to differentiate themselves as opposed to realizing that most people who do taxes or want to do taxes literally just want to get through it. <laughs> yeah, right? it's absolutely. Like, it's and, you like, want, and when you learn a way to get through it that you're happy with, you know, the fact that it completely changes next year, you know, independent of the changes that have to take place, little tweaks because of tax law. But <laughs> the fact that the user interface changes, it's like people look at that and it's like, I don't remember. It's all new again. Yep. So my, I learned this the best, I think, in, in some of the education work I've been doing where the textbook people basically said, well, we rewrite history every eight years. I'm like, what do you mean you rewrite history every eight years? Well, you know, at some point in time, it's like, well, the textbooks are only last this long. And so we basically have year after year rewritten the textbooks. I'm like, yeah, but what if there are no more textbooks and everything's online? You're still going to rewrite history? It's like the, the business model has actually fundamentally changed. 
And their, their whole notion is like, no, no, we'll still need to rewrite. I'm like, what are you rewriting? It's history. <laughs> it's just yeah, so strange. Absolutely. absolutely. So I think I would love that day when people approach things a little bit differently, specifically about software, but history too, and just say that is what I'm changing really that important. You know? Yeah. The thing is, is this is why I go back to struggling moments because I just think that we have to actually understand what's meaningful and what we really need to work on. And like, there's two things. I think that in some cases we don't struggle enough and we have idle time. And so the struggle is what do I do with my time versus I really need to be able to, you know, plant more crops or I got to be able to make more cars or I got to be able to like at some point in time we're in the entertainment business and it's about filling time as opposed to being more productive with our time. And so what is meaningful and how does that play out? Because again, I think all play doesn't make us any better. Like I I go, I travel around the world and I'm afraid because I, I just see how hungry these other countries are to basically learn and do and innovate compared to us who are trying to actually just create free time. So, I mean, how do we get that to change? I think part of it is being able to understand, again, I'm, I'm from Detroit, so I'm a big fan of the work ethic. And I just think the notion of like, I think we've gone overboard in thinking people have to work 80 hours a week. But the reality is, is being able to help people understand what work means. And again, don't ever confuse activity with productivity and helping people understand what is productive things. I mean, Jason uh, Fried and David Hedemeyer Hansen, they have a new book come out that's basically talking about these things of how do you actually get to be and understand productivity that you're supposed to get the work you're supposed to get done is done in 40 hours, not 80 or, you know, we're not trying to squeeze productivity out of people. It's trying to get people to work smarter so they're not so crazy. And so to me, I think it's that way of building some new work ethic and being able to understand some rules of how work is supposed to be. Yeah. I, I recently interviewed Ryan Singer, someone you know pretty well from Basecamp, yeah. right? And I, I felt like there was... The work ethic there and also the approach to work was very sustainable. Oh, yeah. So this is where, again, I look at them and say how much software they crank out compared to what they are. It's like they spend so much time thinking about the work and packaging the work that it's like they don't actually have as much rework as anybody else. Like if you were to look at the productivity per programmer to them versus somebody else, my belief is it would blow the numbers off the chart because – they spend so much time trying to frame what's the job, what's the feature, what's it supposed to do, what's it not, like they, to the point where then they can prototype and learn as opposed to just make stuff. Yeah, I like that. I was really impressed with those guys. Yeah. It was interesting too. I, I also interviewed John Narona a little while back from Optimizely and he talked about a Microsoft rollout where the one of the most popular versions ever, one of the Office products was one that turned into just bug release because of some issues that came up. Yeah with the cloud. And you can see that, that, you know, maybe we push things out and we don't need to really in the SaaS world. It was different a little with packaged software when you wanted to sell a new version. Now it's like a license, right? Yeah. So maybe our mentality just needs to change. So like, we don't need to push a new version out there just for the sake of pushing one out because we need a revenue ball. You well, know, we just make improvements to the outcomes that come out of the software that they're already using. Well, and so the other thing is I'll I'll put some of the onus on us as engineers and technical people is, you know, we want to create new features. We, you know, we love the technical challenge. And so the problem is, is half the time we're building features where there's no struggle. And so I call that supply side innovation where it's like, Hey, I can do this and this and this, like, but nobody's going to use it. (laughs) I like that. Supply side innovation. Yeah. So, so I talk about this notion of supply side innovation and demand side innovation. And, and, I, and I would say I started in supply side where I created what I thought were some great products, but there was no demand for it. And so ultimately, without understanding demand, understanding the jobs, the progress people are trying to make, I end up either over-engineering it or building products that nobody wants. And so I have to start from the demand side. So as people ask us to engage in projects, it's like every project has to start with a form of jobs in one way or another. Because at some point, like, we end up over-engineering it. It's got to have all these features. And it's like, no, it just has to be better than nothing. Or it has to be better than this. And so we end up putting in all these other things that it doesn't need. And though it can do it, and we use it from a features and benefits perspective, it actually doesn't help us sell anything. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Turning a little bit more to, to, you know, to you, you know, you've talked with a lot of people. You've heard a lot of people speak. You you read a lot. Tell me some of the most interesting things you've heard. In some cases, that's too broad. So like unpack that a little bit for me in terms of things that in terms of 
product or in terms of interviews or in terms of like let's let's talk maybe about you know to be a little more specific narrow that down talk about you know things you've heard that you found very interesting about building product yeah so i think that so i actually have in my office a couple of magic wands and i i think that a lot of people come into building a product and they're either academically or they have a process to build the product but they just don't have enough practice to it. And so what happens is, is they, they almost have a very kind of naive view of what it, like they want it to be everything in the kitchen sink. And it's like, okay, and I want to do that for like, you know, uh, 700 bucks. And you're just like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't even know what you're thinking about. And so I, I pull out the magic wand and kind of give it to them and say like, all right, this is, innovation is, is like any other real discipline where like you're not going to put somebody who hasn't studied finance to be in charge of the P&L. You're not going to, you know, you're, like at some point in time, you, you have to realize that you have to have some expertise here to be able to develop a product. It's like the idea is actually the cheapest thing. And at some point in time, it's the most expensive thing. And so to me, it's, it's this almost like the way people have sensationalized the notion of, oh, I had an idea and I built this. It's like but nobody's talking about how, all the hard work and sweat and risk and, and acids they had to take in order to get that product to market. Right. And so I think that to me is the thing that's, that's, it's just, it's very, in my mind, it's very frustrating. And so it's trying to have people have a realistic understanding of, it's like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job and go invent this thing. It's like, I'm going to quit my job and go start a restaurant. Like, but nobody really knows how hard that is. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, it was interesting too. I, I talked to uh, Mike Belsito from Product Collective. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that it came up was how you applied the jobs to be done framework and worked with him around looking at his experience around the industry conference, like a yeah. product, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so jobs to be done is not just something that can be applied and that, that approach and the innovation approach isn't something that can just be applied to, to physical products or software products, but you can apply it to experiences too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. To anything. It, it's really about being able working out. You can apply it to services. You can apply it to, so I do a lot of healthcare work. It's like, what causes you to finally go to the doctor and when do you want to go to the doctor, but you can't. So, to me, where most opportunities lie is what I call non-consumption, where people want to make progress, but they can't because they don't have the knowledge, they don't have access, they don't have the money, they don't actually have the time. And so part of it is being able to understand how can I act. So in that case, where people want to make progress, but they can't, all I have to be is better than nothing, which is them not actually going to the doctor. So Minute Clinic is, of course, a huge hit because the fact is, is I can sign in online. I can tell you what, what, what's wrong with me. I'm going to go in. I know what I've had because I've had it 10 times before. It's like, can I just get my, you know, antibiotic because I've had my, you know, this is sinus infection and I, I know all the signs just fill it for me. I try to go to my doctor and it's like, Oh, four weeks. And Oh, may, oh maybe he can get you in like, you know, uh, tomorrow afternoon at two. And like when it's not convenient for me. And it's like, one of those things was like, I'll just take more over the counter to get by. And so there's these huge markets where the people want to make progress, but they can't, and the old systems are in place. And I think healthcare and education are two of the bigger ones where people want to do stuff, but the way the systems are set up, it's very, very hard to actually consume. Interesting. So looking ahead, you know, we're talking about the future, right? What yeah. trends do you see in the next few years that are going to affect product managers and the craft of product management? I think product managers are going to have to be so first of all i think product management is probably one of the hardest positions to be in because it's typically not the core like though it is probably the core there's usually it's either market driven in terms of sales like we're trying to sell 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 or it's technology driven and what happens is the the product manager is the person who's in the middle who has to negotiate all the trade-offs or lets the trade-offs happen and so my belief is over time is what's going to happen is product management is, is going to get stronger in the aspect of being able to be more explicit to both technologists to help them understand what features we really need, but also to help from the marketing and sales side to be able to understand how to get the right information to talk about the progress people are trying to make. And so my thing is, is that at some point the, from the sales and marketing perspective, I believe that the things like uh, features and benefits has, has run its course. And the notion that I, that I need new features and newness is a reason to buy. I just don't think that that's happening anymore. I think it's more about how is my life going to be better with this product in it? Or how is this pain going to go away because I don't have this old product in it? Yeah, I think that's important for PMs to think about, you know, and 
us to move away from just creating features because we have capacity to create them. Oh, yeah. So that's so Ryan and I talked about this and it's one of those things that if it's like as we build out the job story of like what's you know when this is you know basically the transition of how people are making progress is like all right how is this feature added into this story going to make it a better experience. And so the notion is if I can't find a place to put it, I literally put it in an inventory and say, look, we can do that, but let's look at it as a platform upgrade or as a, as a, a major upgrade across the board for a whole bunch of other things. But if it's not going to change one of these stories, there's no reason for us to develop that right now. Yeah. And I think that's a great approach that not a lot of people have, but I'm seeing it more and more that people are really like, how is this going to make my customers' lives better? You know, yeah. how is it going to help them to do X or Y better? Yeah. How does it make them happier? I, uh. I think the other thing, in the, especially in the software world, is there's a constant conflict between what I call the buyer or the, the, the customer and the consumer, which is the person using the software. And so think of Salesforce. It's typically Salesforce is going to be bought by the VP of sales and the VP of technology, but yet it's implemented by you know, the, the IT department and the sales department. And so part of this is being able to understand kind of if the big hire in terms of the, the VPs wanted to do something, it doesn't do it, they're going to fire it for sure. But if it doesn't help the salespeople sell, they're going to fire it too. And so being able to understand how to satisfy at both the big hire and little higher levels is really important, I think, for PMs to understand that, that I can sell it in, but it, it actually is not being used. And when it's not being used, it will be discarded. Yeah, we spend a lot of time at, at Pendo, you know, helping people understand how their software is used so they can guide and train and educate people, you know, to be more effective based upon their role. And I think that's important, right? That's you right. can't train someone, everyone the same way. You can't that's onboard right. them the same way. You can't educate right. them. You can't train them. Otherwise, you're going to run into those issues. But, but yeah. I also see this moving in the future where not only do you have to educate and train them, but the software experience itself, like the actual menus, the actual features, might be completely different based upon your role, who you are, your attributes. That's correct. And that's where I think AI will come in because I think, so for example, Ryan and I have done some uh, longitudinal work where you can actually see like when they do these five things, that means they're in this job. That means we should probably actually help them do these eight things, but not these other four things. And so you can start to see these patterns as it emerges to be able to help people to automatically help them in those ways, assist them. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll be interesting. So, to so the, the thing is, the craziest part to me is when you start to think about standard ways of onboarding everybody, right? Oh, we're going to walk everybody through the menus. We're going to walk every, like, but that's the way we actually have healthcare. And that's the way we run schools is everybody gets the same experience. It's the craziest thing in the world. And so as a dyslexic, my mom basically spent so much time helping me hack my way through school. Like, I can see words that are seven letters or longer. So I see the spaces first. And so I see, I can see big words. And so she literally had me in red pen right in the book and circle the five largest words on a page and guess, right? And so the notion is, is that if I don't actually think like everybody else, I'm a bad student. And then I'm, I'm literally was supposed, my mom's big thing was she didn't want me to put into special ed. And so she taught me how to cope with all these things. But the notion here is there's all these big services where we, the banking the same way. We treat everybody the same at the bank. I, I just want to put money in. I just want to get money out. Like, how do they not understand what I'm trying to do? They literally treat everybody the same. It's horrible. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's a huge amount of opportunity for personalization of software services. Oh, everywhere. I, and, and I think we're going to see it move to product. I think we're going to move it to where people are going to share product. I mean, we, we've got, we got Airbnb and we, you know, but I believe that you're going to see people sharing more and more things. And it's going to be a really interesting aspect of how people become and have a shared device. So for example, I always, I laugh at Alexa because I think Alexa is actually one of the first new shared devices to go into a house where I have my phone and, you know, my wife has her phone and my kids have their phone. But when we want to build a list to go to Costco, we can't actually do that because there's no shared device and nobody, no shared place to put it. So we all talk to Alexa to build our, our list for Costco. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I can see the same thing. I see more and more shared devices and the, the challenges that that's going to represent. Yeah. So, you know, we've covered a lot today. Talk to me about, you know, a little summary maybe of your words of wisdom to impart to those in, in product leadership. So to be honest, I think it, to be ahead of product is like whenever I've either gotten into a company or been part of a company, I actually try to make sure that I actually understand 
all the different perspectives. So for example, I, I helped start up a, a countertop business that eventually got sold to Mills Pride. And I worked in the factory. I worked uh, in installing them. I worked at Home Depot in that kitchen department before I became the VP, right? So it was my whole thing was is I need to understand everybody's perspective and how they see it. And so to me as a product person, I think one thing I would do is get your hands dirty, get in there, understand what people are wrestling with, understand their struggling moments, both on the sales side and on the programming side and on the, on the problem side and the customer support side. So you can actually figure out how to help everybody make progress and align. I think that having knowledge of those details, I think is important. I think the other thing is to realize that you have to practice and you have to learn. Product is always going to be evolving. It's one of those things where I've worked, some of the things I've worked on, I'm amazed I had the opportunity, but I think part of it was is because I was able to learn so fast and to add value so quickly. And I think the notion here is that listening and being able to have some frameworks that help you frame up an opportunity or a problem very, very quickly to help you understand how to frame options is very quickly. And to be honest, help people make trade-offs. I think those are the key things that as a product manager, if you could do those things, you will be a rock star. So let's, let's talk about Bob a little bit to finish yeah. up. You know, what's your favorite product and why is it your favorite? Well, let's see, I have a couple. So I'm a, I'm a big music guy. And so music is one of those things that I, I believe that it gives me energy in terms of, rhythm in terms of focus in terms of a whole bunch of different things it makes me feel upbeat it makes me it helps me match my moods it helps me so i have lots of things around basically music and playing music so i have virtually if you can see my office i probably have about uh, 45 to 50 headphones i have virtually every speaker system you can imagine and i think one of my favorite is sonos sonos is one of those things where it's in every room i have it connected i can pull it up to any music service I literally don't have to battle my kids for the Bluetooth. Like my favorite was the Bluetooth audio battle of like, I turn on my Bluetooth speaker and be like, it paired to somebody else's phone. I'd be like, okay, who's got my speaker? This is my speaker. So eventually Sonos is one of those things that I, I truly enjoy. And I, I use every single day in every part of both my office and my home life. I think from the car side, uh, uh, Apple CarPlay has done the same thing for my cars. So it's almost like one of those things where I've been waiting for something like that for a long time. And as soon as I got a car with it, it's like, okay, I got to sell all my other cars for Apple CarPlay. That's pretty funny. You know, Apple CarPlay is going to drive, what, $40,000, $50,000 decisions or eighty. dollars Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, it's one of those things where I have a, so like I have a, I have a classic kind of older sports car. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, the, the thing is I'm supposed to keep it exactly the way it is. And I'm literally like, okay, do I sell it? Do I just pull the radio and put a new one that has CarPlay in it? What do I do? And it's one of those things where it's like I'm driving and it's like, and all the clumsiness of listening to music as I'm driving the car, I'm like, oh, this is brutal. Like I'm enjoying the car. Finally, I just turn it all off. And it's like, okay, I love the engine and hearing it drive, like to drive it. So it's, it's in some cases it's good, but it's like, I still wrestle with the music part of it. And it's like, it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I have that first thought of, I got to do something about it. Hmm. That's interesting. Interesting opportunity, I think, imparted there, right? How yep. these little things can make a big, you know, yeah. as far as cost-wise compared to a car can make, you know, a really huge difference in purchasing decisions. That's right. I think there's, the leverage is so much bigger than people realize. And it's like, they think they need to do the whole car. And it's like, no, I could do a part of it. Or, or I just think there's some certain things that drive people crazy that they're willing to pay money for. So I actually think we underprice a lot of solutions because we're trying to get mass as opposed to actually having people value it. Yeah. Like for, for me, and this is going to sound stupid, but with my iPhone, it'll flip onto Bluetooth. And if I put up in my AirPods, it'll, you know, to make a phone call, it'll put my music in my ears. I don't want my music in my ears. I want my music almost always on the car, you right. know, but it, it doesn't do that. And I'll pay five bucks for a little app that did that for me or 10 bucks or 20 right. because right. I have this frustration a lot where I'm like, if I'm in a car, Unless I override it, I always want my music to go to the car stereo. Right. My AirPods are in because I'm making a phone call and they, you know, the, the audio is better for phone calls than on my yep. ears. Or yep. my audio is better, I should say. Yeah. It's crazy though. It's, and again, it's just stupid little things, but those are the things that will cause you to say like, well, you know, God, if they don't fix that, you know, I, I might try Android. And you're like, wait a second, you're going to throw all of Apple out because you're like, mm, at some point in time, I've been trying to figure it out and I can't figure it out. And you're like, wow. And you, you start to realize when you talk to people who switch from Android to Apple or Apple to Android, you hear these stories and it sounds like it's 
so minuscule that caused them to switch. But ultimately, it's like the fear of moving to the next platform is, well, there's really no difference between the two, except for it has these three things that I really want. I might lose my data here, but I'm okay with it. And you're like, wow. So the trade-offs that people are willing to make in order to solve some of these, what I would call our smaller, seemingly insignificant problems, actually will cause people to make big switches in their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's probably pure hubris, but I can think of like half a dozen little things about the phone that I'm like, I could build a better phone. Uh, <laughs> Definitely with your work, right? With your help. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's right. So one final question with, for you today, Bob, and this has been awesome. Greatly enjoyed it. Give me three words to describe yourself. So one is curious. I would say there's things where if I've done it enough times, I kind of don't want to do it again. So I'm always, I'm always trying to find something new and I'm always curious about how things work and kind of new things and finding new ways of things. And so it's like I have that, that bent to always try to be better, be cheaper, be faster, just always kind of doing that. I think another, another word I would say is blunt. I tend to be, let's say, uh, I'll say senior executives love when I'm blunt, but middle managers hate it when I'm blunt because they, don't, they, they actually don't know how to respond. And so to me, it's like I, I, I'm to the point where, again, I, I've got about 2,033 days left in my life, and I've decided that like being blunt is really important. And so it's like uh, I'll swear if I have to swear. It's like, if it, it's like sometimes it's just way more efficient. And I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'm trying to say like instead of taking two minutes to tell you what I mean, I'm just going to say a swear word. <laughs> Right. I think the other one would be as authentic as you kind of get what you get. Like I am who I am. I'm not trying to pretend who I'm not. I would say for the first 35 years of my life, my mom basically told me that I should not tell anybody I was dyslexic. And the day that I kind of told people that I was dyslexic was liberating to the point of I'd rather tell people who I am and what I can do and can't do than try to hide it. And so being authentic is kind of at the core of kind of who I am. That's awesome, Bob. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.